Hello, I'm Nick Baker, and this is the UK Wildlife Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the UK Wildlife Podcast with me, Victoria Hillman. And me, Neil Phillips. So for this episode, we've decided on something a little bit bigger and it's actually a mammal, and we're going to talk about cetaceans, otherwise known as whales and dolphins. And obviously, being the UK Wildlife Podcast, we're going to discuss those that can be found in UK waters. But before we get on to that, we're going to run through our our normal stuff. So I think, Neil, you've got some information about kind of downloads and some shout outs and and bits and pieces. Yeah, we're downloads still going well. So thanks, everybody. Uh, Over 14,000 now, which is, is rather nice. Now, we've had some shout outs and stuff and people contacting us. Tuf Katara, a, a T-U-F-C Tara is how it's spelled on Instagram, tagged us in a picture she's taken with her camera phone. Uh, she's basically got on these little lens adapters and having fun. Apparently we're a bad influence. Uh, she said she's been uh, listening to the podcast and she's thinking of buying a proper camera, as she put it. So uh, go for it. Do it. Go on. Do we it. love it. Do it. You'll never look back. No. <laughs> And Miss Charlotte D has uh, posted some things she's been seeing. She's got a cool slow-mo of a tree bumblebee going in and out of the nest, which is kind of cool. And Daniel Bridge, a friend of mine, he's been making more bee hotels, but this is for a friend. So the bee hotel building, along with the pond building in lockdown, has uh, has been carrying on. It's great. I like, I like to hear that. I don't have you seen this. Have you seen it, Vic? There's been, some people think there's now more ponds than there. You know, because of lockdown, everyone's been digging a pond. People have been putting it off. Have gone, oh, I might as well dig a pond then. And uh... I, you know, I have seen that, and I think it, I think it's really great because we we've gone through a stage in this country where people actually removed ponds from their garden. So now actually seeing that a lot of people are starting to think about putting those ponds back in, and lockdown's kind of given them that that kind of kick up the butt, if you like, to actually put the pond in. I think it's fantastic, and it really will be a massive help for our wildlife. You know, and I know it probably only seems like a little thing putting a little pond in, but yeah, if we can have a little mosaic of ponds, then it can massively help such yeah. a wide variety of wildlife. So, you know, a big thank you to everyone that has done that and put ponds in this year, you know, to their to their gardens. Keep going, you know, and keep encouraging others to do it. What have you been up to, Vic? Well, I have to admit, Neil, not a lot. <laughs> the, the weather's not been so great here in Somerset we we've had some much needed rain more or less on and off for the last couple of weeks to be honest with you Um, I did manage a trip out before the rain started Um, I managed to get a trip out with uh, a friend to have a look at one of my favorite sites for butterflies and I have to admit we were overwhelmed by the sheer number of small and large skippers we saw and also the number and the sound of grasshoppers and crickets it was you just stood there and listened to it it was amazing um and this was actually a couple of weeks ago now, but it's the earliest I've heard the great green bush crickets calling as well. So I'm definitely going to be paying a return visit to that site and then popped out for, for a walk to another one of my favorite reserves around here with a friend this morning. We had some some fantastic kind of chat about varying subjects and actually saw first migrant hawker of the year as well, which was was really good to see quite early for that site. I've normally seen them a little bit later on, but yeah, yeah, it was it was just a, it was good to get out and just see, you know, how some of the sites are faring. But, you know, it's one thing and I don't know if you've noticed this, Neil. Normally, when I go out beginning of July to these sites, we still have a lot of damselflies and dragonflies around. And the numbers just don't seem to be there this year. Now, whether that's because everything came early, so it's kind of finished early and now we're in that lull before we hit the next kind of influx of everything um i don't know i mean i i did actually see a female common data today as well and that's that's quite early for that site to come out in july but yeah yeah the first proper trip out i had to a private nature reserve was it was quite good for quite a few damsels not masses lots of demoiselles and so when would that have been it was sort of may time so the peak time there was quite a lot around yeah and i think a lot of things were early so perhaps yeah you spot on there i haven't been out that much to it's hard to compare when you haven't been out as much as you normally do i've not seen or done much since the last podcast i saw an emperor dragonfly in my garden it was drizzling and i saw this huge dragonfly land on my hedge and it's quite high up so i took some pictures and tried my 
Dandis to turn it into a lesser emperor or a vagrant emperor. <laughs> Even tried to turn it into a green Darna, but no, it was just a, a, ten, oh, well, a recently emerged emperor. I don't think it came out of my pond, sadly. One of great embarrassment of mine, Essex Dragonfly Recorder, and I've never seen a dragonfly or damselfly buzzing around my pond. It's quite embarrassing. My, my friend Daniel Bridge, who we already mentioned, has had great pleasure in showing the, well, he must have to four or five species of dragon damselfly on the pond he dug a few weeks ago. Jamie, <laughs> so, oh. what's it? But do you know uh, what? I think they'll come because you you redid your pond, didn't you? Yeah, but that but I've had it there for six years and I've still never seen one the whole time. Oh. It's been <laughs> so, okay. Um, oh, I'll tell you, I think my my wife reckons she saw something emerge from it once, but I missed it. <laughs> I don't, I, this this year is the first year it's been watched as intensely. I've it sort of gets forgotten about a little bit when I try and do photography, but the froglets are still coming out. I've got some nice pictures of those. Yeah, well, that's the point. Actually, all my fro- all my froglets have emerged now. I think I've not seen any like because we've had quite warm damp weather um you know the the little froglets have been coming out and you know it it did make me pick up my camera and take some pictures of my little froglets i couldn't resist um i did pay for it for about three days afterwards i wish you should probably say as well i don't know i we haven't done a bee orchid update for a while have we No, no no so we reached 10 flowers um i managed to get a photo with all 10 flowers on my bee orchid and we'll pop that up on on the social media sites as well so you can see it it has now it is starting to die off and die back now but we got there i got photos with all 10 flowers in various stages so that's kind of going to be the final bee orchid update i'm afraid that there won't be any more photos off i have had one trip out i actually wandered out of essex slightly and i went to visit daisy cogney and Simon, who are listeners to the show, hello guys, actually met them, obviously socially distanced from from them, because she found a patch of lots of tiger beetles. When I went there, of course, the weather wasn't quite sunny enough, and I only found one. But there was loads of bee wolves and a few other sort of these various mining bees and wasps around, and that was really cool. I got some nice pictures, which you can see on my Twitter feed. I'll, put, I'll try and put some on the podcast ones as well a bit later. But that was, uh, it was you know, it was worth the trip out then. I didn't get the tiger beetles. I, I'm jinxed with those. It's a long running. It's almost a joke now <laughs> trying to photograph them i remember a couple of years ago at fursley using my 300 mil lens with a teleconverter and extension tubes because they're just so flighty and it was so hot that <laughs> it was just desperation problem mm-hmm. is that sort of focal length you start getting heat haze even when you're doing macros and i saw my friend who i, I put to it was until i got there i realized worked at the same place as daisy someone i've known for years so <laughs> it was quite embarrassing oh, that's nice. <laughs> i hadn't drawn the dots together but never mind and daisy was very kind to um, let susie know i was there so uh, i got to meet up her as well so oh, also she nice. distanced of course i should point out because we have to these days but but it's yeah. nice i think it's really nice that we can now go out and meet those friends you know yeah. even if socially distanced is being you know being able to have conversations and chat whilst walking around in nature looking for things and and that and although I'm not photographing um, other than with my phone at the moment it, yeah it's nice you know just being out with someone else and you can find things and then they can take pictures of it so it's really nice and I think there's actually one other sighting and I apologies if I already mentioned this because I actually I can't remember if I mentioned this in in the last main episode and that was of a golden ring dragonfly I can't remember if you did or not no I, no. Think, that, I think you saw that just before we did the stag beetle one I, I met up with another friend at one of my historically it's been a very very good orchid and butterfly site for me unfortunately now I think it is overgrazed and the numbers of orchids are are down and the number of butterflies are down and they have been going down for a few years but anyway we were just walking along you know seeing what we could find and we saw this big dragonfly and normally when you see a big dragonfly around here you think oh it's probably an emperor and this is this is some distance from any ponds or water bodies you know rivers streams or whatever it landed and it was eating something so it allowed us to get close enough and I can I honestly was so genuinely shocked when I saw that it was a golden ring dragonfly it is the first time in my life I've ever seen a golden ring dragonfly um so a real first for me but really in a place that I would never expect to see one because I think I think I I told you Neil and we looked at it and there were no records for it in that particular area so that was amazing so there we go. That was another first for me. Oh, I love golden ring dragonflies. Don't get them. I think the nearest site to me is one site in Kent somewhere. And yeah, but Fursley is the only place I know that it's fairly reliable for them anywhere near me. But that's still a bit of a trip. But great memories of them on Dartmoor. I think we did the Nick Baker episode. I remember seeing them as a kid. So I didn't I didn't realise it's your first one. I don't think you mentioned that. But, um, yeah. I, I, well, you might have said first one and I took that as first one on that site. So, oh, wow. No, no, no. No, that was my first ever golden ring dragonfly. Right. Shall we move on to the news? 
I and, think we shall. And you'll be pleased to hear I have two rants. <laughs> uh, depressing so, rants. So I'm uh, thinking, shall we split your, your rants up yeah. with some good news? Let's split up some good news. I'll start with the, uh, this one has particularly, well, both of these have really riled me up a bit. We mentioned the, I don't know if you mentioned Blackbird this week directly, but we mentioned this whole increase in diversity in nature countryside. I read yesterday, funny enough, uh, before I wrote the notes for it, after I've written notes for all this stuff, that I think it's in, was it environmental. I don't know if it's environmental sector or conservation sector is the second least diverse sector in the UK, which is pretty embarrassing. You know, after farming, which is going to be inherently less diverse because it's obviously inher- a lot of farms are inherited and stuff. Yeah, that's pretty shocking when you think about it. So there's this movement called Black Birders Week, and its aim is to try and increase diversity in birding and conservation generally, I guess, and also highlight that, unfortunately, there are sometimes problems with racism within the hobby. Thankfully, not too common. You know, it is an issue that is there and we need to acknowledge it. Unfortunately, when this gets mentioned on social media, you get a certain type of person come out of the woodwork. Some of it is just ignorance and denial and some of it is just awful people basically <laughs> that's just a polite way of putting it i posted it and i think it was like the third response on my facebook page uh, was what was it this is all we need some jumped up overpaid graduate trying to make a name for themselves spoiling the hobby of thousands of decent people well how does encouraging more you know more diversity ruin a hobby i don't understand that unless of course you have a certain viewpoint on certain things and this person would not have it when i explained what it's no it's not about you know accusing people of it it's just sort of acknowledging it and he ended up asking his black friend that's a direct quote of him at work who wasn't a bird watcher who told him that it's a load of rubbish that there's any racism or any problem with diversity in birding. So, yeah, the old black friend argument, let's not go there. Someone else said, oh, they'll be renaming blackbirds next. And in the end, I had people coming onto the page that when I looked weren't even following it or like, let alone like it. And we're just, yeah, I had to ban about, I think I looked it up, it was about eight people. And in the, I don't know how many years we've been running that page, seven, eight years, I've banned less than 10 before then so it shows you how ridiculous it is thankfully there was some support though for the whole idea there's a top london birder who has a mixed race family and he said he had experienced you know racism and dirty looks and stuff when he's gone into the hide with them and yeah he was supportive of the idea but i think the most heartening one was there was a lady initially was accusing me of jumping on the bandwagon and i said to some links of you know evidence of what they were saying was true and to be fair to her she went she sort of held her hands up and went oh no no fair enough no i didn't i hadn't realized thank you very much for letting me know kind of thing so you know there is hope out there that's the whole idea of the thing is just to make people aware of it countryfile had a piece on there where they spoke to somebody about this and again there's people saying they should defund the BBC for sharing this rubbish, etc. Blah 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 on Twitter, and it's just oh, it's just depressing. I know a lot of people just want any excuse to shut down the BBC, but that's a whole other matter. Basically, there is issues. Diversity is not great in conservation, birding na- among naturalists and stuff like that. And I'd, you know, it's it's not saying everyone that does it is racist. It's not saying most are. It's just you know you've got to acknowledge these things and work out why. And a lot of it is background. Um, there have been studies done that have shown there is a perception that it's a white people only zone kind of thing and you know whether that's right or wrong or or what it the perception is still there it's a middle-aged white man can't really comment on that perspective myself but i'll listen to those that have that perspective but do have a look around um i've shared a link on our uh, podcast twitter uh, from a young birder it's got a really good write-up on this sort of stuff so yeah quite insightful blog post and i think it's just about being open-minded isn't it yeah really but you know it's always you you the people we're talking to are most our listeners if not all of them are probably thinking but i would be welcoming and stuff and you probably would be but mm. there are some and i ha- and when you if, you if you think honestly you know what you overhear in some of the hides and let's just say uh, one of the most prominent twitchers has now written extreme right politics on his profile boldly and proudly it sort of doesn't give the right impression to someone that might be starting up the hobby that might put them off it literally something like that could put you off i could see that putting me off well it puts me off and i'm white to be honest yeah uh, being associated with people like that and this is this is the sort of person that is maybe not highly regarded but people sort of put up with his racist nonsense because you know they want his help finding birds and i just think yeah that's a whole enough that's a yet another matter which is probably worth an episode on its own to be quite honest should we talk about something a bit more positive now something a bit yes more so i i'm going to take this one on because i'm not you know for for many of the people that know me you know that i'm not saying i, I don't love birds and I, I do but they're not 
my first subject that I would go to when it comes to photography or looking out for to be honest you know I might much prefer the smaller things I'm, I'm just more interested in them but there is one bird that I have a fascination with and I do absolutely love and it is the guy or the bearded vulture and at the end of June and this is for the second year running a bearded vulture or lamagaya has actually been recorded in the UK and it was seen in Kenilworth and it was seen to be heading north they believe it might actually be the same individual that was seen last year due to the missing feathers and the damage to their tail they think it may it may well be actually the same individual but this is the second year running that you know bearded vulture has actually been seen in the UK and I think that's actually potentially really exciting news there are certainly areas of the uk that could be potential sites for them i mean it is a juvenile one and the thing is is with bearded vultures you can tell by the color of them so juvenile bearded vultures are actually dark they don't have the characteristic rusty colored body heads and bodies they are dark all over and that's how you tell the juvenile and what we'll do is we, we will put a couple of pits up because i've got juvenile and adult um, so yeah. we can actually, you know, put some pictures up to show the difference. But I, I think that's amazing. I mean, I, I, I would be over the moon to see a bearded vulture, a lamagaya yeah. here in the UK. And I actually, I think it was a few years ago, but I'm pretty sure there was actually an adult scene in the Bristol area. Funny enough, I was looking on Twitter today. It's the 10th of July we're recording this, and there's been people driving around the, the area that it's been seen today, trying to find it. And if, uh, one person seen it a few times, but I saw someone put out some news that it, someone found out where it was roosting. And I'm guessing there's a huge crowd of twitchers still there oh. now, even though it's uh, dark. I'm sure they're all socially distancing. They're big birds as well. Oh, yeah. you, you're not going to mistake it for anything else when you see it fly. It is a big bird. I've been you know, lucky enough to see them in the wild in, in a few different countries. And they're, they're big birds. They are unmistakable for sure. But if you, you, know, if you, if you do want to kind of see one, please do get, respect it and give it some space. Mm. Uh, back to depressing news. It's back to Neil's rants. <laughs> Neil's rants. We should just quit Neil's rants other news. We should. We? we should. Right. Now, we do try and stay off politics here, but inevitably conservation is linked with politics. And politics in this country, if you can still call it that, is linked to our prime minister very closely, who said a few days ago from the day of recording, the newt counting delays in our system are a massive drag on the productivity and prosperity of this country, which is complete and total word i should need to beep out so i won't say it rubbish um, there is a yeah well that's not strong enough because there's a government study done within the last couple of years that show that is absolutely not the case you know on individual cases they can sometimes cause delays but most of that is caused by the developer trying to rush things um, or a bad ecologist not doing a proper job in the first place it's complete nonsense and it demonizes great critted newts which have already been, you know, with the tabloids, with these constant, you know, one newt costs four billion pounds to developers or something. I might be exaggerating slightly, but not much more than they do. When the truth is that they lump every, the cost of everything into and claim it's just a newt and it isn't. It's, you know, it's their bad planning and stuff. And quite frankly, the house prices are now. They can absorb it so easily anyway. And there's a new system coming in. Uh, I won't go into... If you go on my Facebook page, um, you go on Facebook page, I've got a proper long rant on there, which explains it a little bit more. But this thing called district licensing. And if you're in a, an area that's deemed not Great Christmas Newt habitat, you, you just buy this license and you sort it. You don't have to, you, just, you know, if you find a newt, you have to move it, but you can carry on building. So it's not causing any problems. What it is linked to, and I hate to bring it up, but is Great Christmas Newt legislation is linked to EU legislation. And we all know what Boris's brand demands on the eu which is what i think it's all about at the end of the day but boris hasn't stopped there last year i think we might have even mentioned on the podcast possibly one of our first ones i can't remember if this is before or after that last year the welsh assembly did a massive review they were going to build the m4 a bypass on the m4 right through the gwent uh, level which is basically wales's best area of wetland and they decided not to do it because it was too costly and too destructive and they'd look at investing in public transport to try and sort out the problems that it supposedly would have solved which it wouldn't have because after a few years you'd have had more cars because there's more of a bypass which always happens and boris in his prime prime minister's question time vowed to solve the problem of traffic in this area by building a proper bypass and the only option that was available is straight through the gwent marshes now obviously the welsh assembly are up in arms and everything because they claim he has no jurisdiction to do it which at the moment he probably doesn't not jurisdiction that's the wrong word he has no well he doesn't have the authority to do it basically which at the moment he doesn't 
But of course, he can change the laws in Parliament and get it. So uh, after an exhaustive year, almost been years of fighting by with Welsh Wildlife Trust and loads of other people, Save Gwent, was it Save Gwent Levels like Group or something like that they're called, and to stop this, they might have to start again, which is just exasperating and hopefully not a sign of things to come. Uh, after the 31st of January, when a lot of the EU protections will be lifted. We shall see. We shall see. So it's like good cop, bad cop on this. Isn't it? it is a bit, yeah. <laughs> um, bad cop call. So there's, an, there's another really lovely story come out. And, you know, whatever you think about this, and I know there's, there's we have discussed and there's, there might be some other, you know, positive, negative stories around this. And it, it's with regards to the White Cliffs of Dover. And uh, the National Trust have worked really hard to transform um, land that was brought in an appeal backed by um, Dame Vera Lynn to bring back nature. And they bought these fields on the White Cliffs of Dover um, and they've put huge amounts of effort in to restore grassland that had been like intensively farmed since the war. And, you know, now and it, this isn't something that happens overnight. This is going to take years to do. But what they're seeing now is these fields are absolutely alive with nature they are nat- they're natural grasslands so they have the grasses the wildflowers everything it's not just about wildflowers and what they've seen this year is they've seen you know the return of skylarks amongst in amongst huge numbers of other species and it's been to me i think it's a real success story because it's i mean i've i've not obviously personally seen the fields dover is a long way from from somerset and but i think you know it's good to see that they've they've tried to restore what is formerly intensively grazed farmland to natural you know grasslands and wildflower meadows so having all the natural grasses and the wildflowers and you know I just think that's a, that's a really lovely thing to be able to do and I think you know the potential there to create vital habitat for so many species is is fantastic and you know hopefully that will continue to grow and hopefully it will also encourage other places to you know look at maybe you know, buying up some more intensively farmed land or you know, areas that are being just left, you know, can we convert that back to traditional grasslands and meadows where our wildlife can naturally thrive? I know there's a lot of debates and obviously not going to cover it as a news story, but there's been a lot of debates about, you know, planting more wildflowers. But actually what we need is if you if you want to create wildflower patches shall we call them, or wild patches in your garden. You need to have the grasses as well. You can't just have flowers. You know, our, our wildlife needs the grasses to thrive. So the fact that they've they've done this and they've combined grassland and meadows and they're seeing this this big increase in wildlife, I think it's just absolutely wonderful. And maybe, yeah. maybe next year I can visit it. Yeah, I'll maybe, maybe we can both visit visit it and actually do an update for the UK Wildlife Podcast. That'd be good. Yeah, I don't think Dover's too far from me, actually. It's, it's under two hours, it must be, surely. This is more like four for me. but <laughs> mm. There's a walk by to sign here, there. Somewhere right, we're doing Dover. it then. You've heard it on this episode. We are going to yeah, do a UK Wildlife Podcast it. next year from Dover. I know it's like for Woolies, it's not a million miles away as well. Right, so now back to the depressing news. We've mentioned it before, how rubbish the water quality is in rivers in the UK. But even I was shocked by the stats that I think it's a freedom of information request that water companies in England discharge raw sewage into our rivers on more than get this 200,000 occasions in just last year that's raw untreated sewage now the theory is that it's raining heavily when they can do this which overwhelms their system and they just they can let it go now I think it's meant to be investigated every time this is done but it isn't because environment agency just don't it just seems to me you've got a load of water companies they're all privately owned they all want to make a profit they're all making massive profits and there seems to be no enforcement at all of any of this people i've heard from so many people where they've reported something to the environment agency and they don't even investigate it you know you've got not just sewage you've got plastic sanitary towels and wipes and all that clogging up supposedly pristine rivers and to cap it off i think it was today or the other day there was a story that in 20 years' time, some parts of the UK are going to run out of water because the water companies just aren't investing in sorting out our water supplies. And a lot of these rivers with the 200,000 raw sewage are where our water supplies are coming from, which is just ill, basically. Mm. And there's, I think it was the River Lee. They've had one of these lockdown problems. People are going swimming in the River Lee and loads of them came down sick. They shouldn't be in the river anyway because it's a nature area, but they all come down sick because their sewage was released upstream 
but they didn't put the news out like they should do that it happened so people were swimming in raw sewage it's just like this is just terrible and why it's not a national you know national scandal news you know well a lot of things should be an aunt <laughs> yeah it, it's you know we live in a inverted commas i think you have to say now developed country and we're putting raw sewage in our rivers even now it's, it's disgraceful there's no yeah. way around it really it is shocking yeah can i do a positive one go on i'll ruin my bad cop image but yes cattle grits of bread in norfolk yay yay i like cattle grits they're really cool um, I've got a lovely picture of one standing on a horse. <laughs> Not a horse, <laughs> a sheep. Oh, God, I can't live with my farm animals now. <laughs> I've, I've reached that point. I've been locked inside so long, I've forgotten my farm animals. I forget my children are teaching yeah. me again. Newsflash, Neil can't tell the difference between a horse and a sheep. Horse and sheep. Oh, proper townie then, aren't I? Yeah. In it, bruv. Oh, yes, yeah, it was a sheep. So, so the joke, everyone, of course, everyone seems to put it online, is, oh, it should be a sheep egret. Like, yeah, I didn't think of that awful joke. I'm a dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah dad jokes are your thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> should we finish on one more positive story then before Let's we go, go on it. to go our on. main? So this actually came out in the news today. So this is, you know, this is probably the, the most up-to-date news we've ever given. And this is the news that European bison are to be introduced into a Kent woodland. Now, I've seen some mixed comments about this. So I'm purely just going to give the news bit right now. And maybe it's something we can discuss in another yeah. episode about like introducing things. So actually in ancient Britain, we used to have a, a an animal called a step bison that actually roamed Britain. So it's not like they were never here. And this is this breed that they're going to introduce is one of the closest living relatives to the one that we used to have here. And basically what, what they've said is that the bison are going to be introduced into a UK woodland to restore ancient habitat and its wildlife. And this is being done it's being led by Kent Wildlife Trust and the Wildwood Trust. And they're looking to bring them in, in in 2022. So, you know, in a couple of years time, it will be their next home. So they've got plenty of time to prepare for it. And they'll actually, they, they do have to put fences up and they'll obviously be enclosed and they'll be joining other grazing animals. And the hope is that, you know, by using them to kind of graze, it will be able to create you know, the, the different habitats that are needed by our different wildlife, you know, so basically creating a good mosaic of habitat, you know, and it's, I mean, they're, they're, they're big animals. <laughs> if you've ever had the chance to see one, they're, they're not mm. small, but you know, these are animals that can actually fell trees, you know, obviously smaller trees by rubbing up against them. And what this does is this actually creates spaces of area and light, which for some of our butterflies, for example, the heath fritillary, it's, they need open areas and it also allows the plants that they would need to grow in those areas as well so you get you know you're going to get bare patches where which will be good for reptiles and you know other you know invertebrates and plants and stuff so you know i think you know this news has only broken today it's only come out today and i think there will be a lot of discussions going on for going on you know going forwards with it but i think you know i think that's a really good one to end on for our news section because that is one that's just come out today and i think that's some interesting thinking about how we can you know recreate some habitats that will be better for a wider variety of, of species yeah i say if anyone that lives in the southeast uh, wildwood is a it's what a wildlife park should be it's all native british stuff or non-native british it's stuff anything that's associated with britain so they've they've rescued a few bears from romania and stuff like that which would have been native here but they've got that so they've got the european bison there yeah they're big animals <laughs> yeah big doesn't necessarily mean you know they're going to kill people and stuff apparently someone was objecting to it one of the controversies oh they're dangerous well one they're enclosed and two they're running wild in poland germany and Oh, and in so in so many areas, you know, and they there's, are, there's, there's no, when they've been reintroduced, there's been no documented incidents of humans injuring no. them. So huge, but beautiful animals. And mm-hmm. conic ponies, another thing to introduce them with them. And I love conic ponies. Yeah. Oh, no, I shouldn't say conic pony, should you? Because that's pony in Polish and then pony again. So you're saying pony <laughs> pony when you say conic pony. Someone told me that one. But yeah, Wildwood, fantastic. They breed pine martins, they breed red squirrels, they breed wildcats. They've got. A collection of reptiles and rescued birds and stuff and yeah i love it there haven't been for a few years but uh, we were members for a very long time but yeah yes yeah, a great place to visit wildwood shall we get on to our main subject oh yes one of my favorite uh, you know I've, i think whales and dolphins are too good to be classified as mammals personally i think they're far too interesting <laughs> they, they um, are they are really interesting actually and we yeah. we thought we'd do something a little bit different so we've done quite a lot on invertebrates and we've done a few episodes on birds we've done some amphibians and we've got some stuff lined up for reptiles and stuff as well but we thought well actually you know we know we have a wide range of listeners that love all kinds of nature so why not do cetaceans whales and dolphins because this is also a really good time of year to start looking for them that's what we're going to concentrate on for the rest of this episode so i'm gonna just have a 
a quick introduction to cetaceans, which is whales, dolphins and porpoises. They are mammals, not fish. Surprising how many people don't realise that sometimes. I imagine most people to this show will know, though. They're supremely adapted to living in the sea, or in some cases, rivers. The blowhole is actually their nostril. So over evolution, it's moved from the tip of their snout to the top of their head so they can breathe easier when swimming along. The head has usually grown larger, certainly in many species. Uh, the front legs are now flippers. Rear legs and the pelvis have basically disappeared into the skeleton, really. Sometimes there's the odd bone, or occasionally you'll get a throwback. Uh, with a wow with legs swimming around but generally they don't have them uh, the skin is pretty much free of hairs and uh, thick layer of blubber underneath to keep them warm and they're obviously streamlined with that hairless skin as well and they've also got lots of sort of internal adaptations so they can store oxygen in their muscles when they dive so you, when they're breathing at the surface they're sort of pumping oxygen into their not into their blood but into their muscles so they've got an oxygen supply they can sort of shut down all their organs when they dive deep so things like sperm whales do that quite a lot. And by keeping the oxygen in their muscles rather than their blood, it sort of helps avoid the bends, which is also nitrogen bubbles and very complicated. I'm not going to get into today. Their evolution is quite fascinating. I was going to very, do a very quick version of it. They're related. Their closest living relatives are hippos. So technically, whales and dolphins, I was quite surprised when I first found this out, are artiodactyls or even-toed ungulates. So things like pigs, cows, and in the UK, their closest relatives will be deer, which is quite a kind of weird, weird <laughs> thing about that. You think about it. Now, the earliest ones we know of, I mean, depends what you define as a whale, but most people go with Pachycetus, which shockingly comes from Pakistan. And that was kind of a semi-aquatic. It did eight fish and small animals. The nostrils still at the end of its snout. But it's got some of the bones that you know, correlate with a whale. And it's if you know what a tapir is, few people know what a tapir is. With, imagine it with, or some people reconstruct it with the trunk. But without the trunk, that's kind of roughly what Pachycetus look like. And there's a whole, almost a lineage going all the way through from this, you know, tapir-like animal all the way down to modern whales through the fossil record. About 20 years ago, there wasn't. And it was a favourite sort of thing to pick on if you're a creationist. Going, oh, there's no, you know, evolution of whales. There is now. And there's a few more things I can mention that are obviously on the line down but about five million years later you get this creature called Amblyocetus Amblyocetus sorry and if you think of a mammalian crocodile it basically was that so it probably still had some fur whereas Pegasus is probably fully furred and it's got these short legs it wasn't probably wasn't that great on land some people have speculated that it may have lived like a crocodile and even sort of ambushed creatures as they came close to the shore which is it's kind of cool to think about a mammalian crocodile and this would have started swimming you know this um, vertical undulation and if you think about it, if you watch a cheetah or a horse running that is what their backbone does so they're effectively sprinting underwater whales when they move without the legs which sounds bizarre but think about the way the back moves it's yeah, amazing when you start thinking about this. And then by about 40 million years ago, we're getting animals like Basilosaurus, which still has a small pair of bat legs, but it's got the flukes on the tail. It's got fins instead of legs. And Basilosaurus was a bit weird for a while. It was quite long and elongate, almost sea serpent-like, which is why it's called Basilosaurus, and the saurus meaning lizard, because they thought it was a, a sea reptile to start with, like the sort of things that are around in the Mesozoic with dinosaurs. And then soon after that, they split into the two groups. So you have the baleen whales, which are the Meistercetes, and that includes things like blue whale, fin whale, minky whale, humpback, and stuff like that. And they've all got this modified, no teeth, but modified hairs, baleen, to filter out food from the water. So they take a gulp of water with plankton, like krill, or sometimes small fish, and stuff like that, and force the water out of their tongue. And of course, the baleen acts like a net and catches the food. And you've also got the Odontocetes, which is the toothed whales and dolphins so that's sperm whales beaked whales narwhals and dolphins of course now in the uk we have representatives from both according to my handbook of british mammals we've got 27 species i have seen 30 species used elsewhere but that's sort of found in and around our waters that was used for so yeah it depends how you define it it's quite an impressive list we've got five extinct species that's still living of the raw quails which is the big filter feeders so that's blue whales minky whales humpbacks and stuff like that we've got the occasional records of bowhead rail and right whales which are arctic species and also the odd narwhal and beluga i'll talk about belugas a bit more in a minute we've got six beaked whales and bottlenose whales uh, which are, tend to be offshore deep diving species all three sperm whale species so we've got the big sperm whale everyone knows about moby dick but there's a pygmy and a dwarf sperm whale as well but again they're more offshore generally and we've got 12 dolphins including the, the harbour porpoise and orca and like I say, sometimes you get narwhal and belugas too. The most famous beluga is probably Benny the beluga that was in the Thames. What was that? Two years ago, I believe. Yeah, eight, I winter so, of yeah, 1890. Yeah, a couple of years ago, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, so start of last year, end of the year before. And I was actually lucky enough to see him on the first day he was reported in the Thames. So it's not far from me. I was working about 10 minutes away. So yeah, that was rather cool to see. It was miles away and just a little white blob, but I did get to see him. So that was rather cool. And he was quite happy there. And he was. I think he was seen heading out in sort of springtime. So we assume he just came a bit far south than he normally would have. And they do come pretty much as far south as us on the American Canadian side, which are a similar latitude to us. So he probably just went down the wrong side of the Atlantic. But he was quite happy and plenty of food in the Thames these days. So uh, that was quite cool. There's also one record of Fraser's dolphin, which is a very rare one, but that died soon after. And another famous case is a northern bottlenose whale. Now, we do know they're off our shore. We do see them. There was a northern bottlenose whale in 2006 that famously died in the Thames, in right in central London. He swam all the way up there, got a bit lost. And when they tried to rescue him, he unfortunately died, which is what a lot of us were worried Benny the Beluga would do, but he didn't, thankfully. Now, whales and dolphins would have been a lot more common around our shores a few hundred years ago, but Britain was a big whaling country. Even in medieval times, we'd hunt them, but it was the 19th or 20th century, we went nuts, shall we say, and we basically wiped out most of our whale, certainly our large whales. They they do seem to possibly be recovering now. There certainly seems to be more minkies around. Whether that's because we're looking for them more, I don't know, but yeah, that's quite good. But something that has gone completely extinct is the grey whale. Now, they're famous for being off the coast of California, Monterey Bay and all that, but we had some in the Atlantic before we wiped them out. And... There has been plans muted to actually introduce 50 from California to the Irish Sea. That's back in 2005, but I couldn't find any more about that, so I guess it got cancelled. But how you'd move such a massive animal, you know, when they get beached on a beach, we can't do much with them. So, uh, mm-hmm. But there is some hope brought for us by global warming. So just like with dragonflies, <laughs> global warming could be good. <laughs> you know, the patches open up where the Arctic Circle's melting. Uh, not the Arctic Circle itself, within the Arctic Circle, all the ice is melting. There has been more sightings of them in some sightings in the Atlantic, even one off Israel in the Mediterranean. Now, how weird is that? And one off the coast of Africa. So perhaps they will naturally recolonise. And looking at the well, bone date, I think they said it was. But, uh, so look at, when they've analysed the populations that exist now and skeletons and stuff, it does look like 5,000 years ago when it was a bit warmer, they may have snuck through the Arctic to come into Atlantic anyway and sort of swapped both ways. So who knows? Maybe. Maybe we'll get grey whales off our shore soon. I've mentioned whaling. That isn't a problem so much, certainly around British shores anyway, these days. Although Norway and Iceland, I believe, do steal whales. I don't think they do it in British shores. But of course, some of our whales moving through between them because a lot of them migrate and may be in danger there. But the biggest threats to them, things like pollution, plastic. A lot of the ones that wash up on our shores seem to have bellies with plastic. Bycatch, so certainly lots of dolphins get caught in nets. So there's measures are taken these days to try and prevent it. They do end up getting caught in fishing nets. There was a picture last night on Twitter where one had clearly been shot in the head, a common dolphin. Probably a fisherman's caught it and shot it because it's easier than trying to get them out of the net. Well, you could argue the dolphin's suffering anyway, but I won't get into the effects on that. And there's acoustic problems another problem so the noise we make with ships interrupt their echolocation so a lot of the tooth whales navigate by echolocating so basically sonar and but all the whales communicate with each other underwater and if there's too much ship noise they can't do that and lastly ships again ship strikes so a whale sitting near the surface and a boat comes along and hits the back of it it can kill them and certainly injure them there's lots of other issues now we've stopped the whaling unfortunately and of course competing for food so we could be wiping out their food stocks as well with by fishing Vic now is going to run through some of the more likely ones to be seen around the UK shores yeah so you know thanks for the for the introduction then it's 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 good to get a broader picture of the ones that we have around our shores because there are quite a lot and it's more than most people would probably actually think but you know I thought I'd delve a little bit deeper into five probably more common species that you would tend to find around the UK waters. So we're going to start off small and work our way up. So we're going to start with the harbour porpoise. There's actually, you know, it is our smallest cetacean, getting up to about 1.7 metres and about, I've got 7.6 kilograms. That cannot be right. That must be 76 kilograms. Yeah. <laughs> I've put my full stop in the wrong place. So about 1.7 metres and, and 76 kilograms. So it is a, a small cetacean. And they only live for around 15 years. So they actually live a really fast and furious life. They actually mature at an early age and they reproduce more frequently than other cetaceans. So with the harbour porpoise, it will reach sexual maturity around about three to four years. And they will breed every one to two years. And they have a gestation period of around 10 to 11 months. And the calf will actually only suckle for about four to eight months. Um, and then it will be weaned and then off it goes. They're, they're quite 
you know, when you see them, they're, they're quite distinctive and, and different from the other cetaceans because they're sized to start with. They're small. They're dark grey above and they don't have any marks or scars, generally speaking, along the back. And they have a small triangular dorsal fin. And it's actually when they break the surface, that's what we see. We see a little bit of their back and their triangular dorsal fin. And because they're so small and that dorsal fin is small, if you're looking for them out in rougher seas, they can very easily be missed, you know, mistaken for you know, changes in the water. So, you know, they're, they're not easy to spot at all. They are normally seen in shallow waters as individuals or in small groups. Yeah, they, they live in the colder waters and they actually tend to feed more frequently. So they're small and those that live in colder waters, they sometimes can feed day and night. So they're constantly, it's kind of very fast and furious lifestyle that they have. Their diet consists of small fish like herring, but they'll also take sand eels and if the chance arises, squid and octopus. So it's not, you know, again, they've, they've got quite a varied diet. And I would say it's probably a most commonly seen cetaceans. It's the one you're most likely to see making its way up rivers, like inland, and they actually uh, tend to follow follow food. So they'll follow fish inland and then they'll kind of come back out again. I know we had a question from Alan on Twitter about that and basically they follow the food source in and then they'll follow it back out again. But they're probably the one that we most commonly see inland. So moving up in size a little bit, we're actually going to move on to the dolphins now. And we're going to start with the common dolphin, also known as the short-beaked common dolphin. It's actually one of the smallest true dolphins, measuring up to about 2.4 metres and weighing between about 75 to 85 kilograms. Now, they're long and slender, these dolphins. They have a relatively tall and pointed dorsal fin, but they have a characteristic hourglass patterning on their side or their flanks which is a technical term and it's normally a pale yellow to tan color forward of the dorsal fin and would be a pale gray color behind but that when you see it it's unmistakable it's a very distinctive hourglass figure they live for around 30 to 35 years so you know really kind of double that of a, of a porpoise the males reach sexual maturity between about five to seven years and females at around about six years calves are born in the spring or autumn after a gestation of again around about 10 to 11 months and are weaned at around 19 months. So you can see it's a much longer kind of suckling period before the calves are weaned and go off on their own, really. The females will then actually have a rest period of between about two to three years before calving again. So that they won't, they will actually have a break after, you know, one calf before they have another one. They have a very varied diet and they're opportunistic feeders, feeding on cod, hake, mackerel, sardines, you know, pretty much most things. Groups will utilise cooperative feeding techniques to herd shoals of fish. And this is, you know, you've probably seen video clips of it. It's amazing that this is where they work together. And this is probably the one dolphin that's found in larger active pods. Normally we see them in smaller pods of up to around about 30 or we can see them as individuals or, or in pairs. But they'll also form superpods, and these can contain over 100 individuals. And I know it's quite a few years ago, there was a superpod off the coast of the UK that had well over 100 individuals in it. These, uh, and it's actually something that Neil touched on, you know, cetaceans are very vocal, and common dolphins are very vocal, and they, drop, they develop strong social bonds, particularly between the mother and calf and between males and females. As with the common dolphin, actually also, also the bottlenose dolphin, they will frequently bow ride with boats, staying with boats for a few miles. They're energetic, and they can be quite aerially acrobatic as well. So a really kind of fun species to see. And I believe Neil's actually been lucky enough to see those around the UK. I haven't, actually, funnily enough. I've not seen the common oh. dolphin. I was with a company called Marine Discovery Penzance and they had a catamaran and they were bow riding between the bows and I was laying on the netting right at the front. So they were about oh. six foot in front of me surfacing, mm. which was pretty cool. Funny enough, that was exactly four or five years ago yesterday. The company put a picture of me laying at the front of the dock <laughs> right in front of me. I'll, try and, I'll share it actually on the UK Wildlife. Yeah, I find it. Yeah, do. We're going to move on to bigger dolphin and actually probably one of the most common dolphins and, you know, most easily recognizable and that's the bottlenose dolphin these are large robust dolphins and if you've seen them off the coast of uk and seen them in other parts of the world you'll know you'll see just how big they are they can grow up to about four meters and up to about 650 kilograms that's a lot of dolphin and actually here in the uk we have some of the largest bottlenose dolphins in the world so technically they're still the same species that you know you get them they're a very widespread dolphin across the world, but the ones that you would maybe see in the Caribbean or in warmer waters will tend to be quite a bit smaller than the ones that we have here living in our colder waters. And the population up in Scotland is actually the most northerly population that uh, lives in, in around the world. Now, they're long-lived. Uh, they live for about 45 to 50 years. A single calf is born in the summer months following mating previous year, and the calf is suckled for around 18 to 24 months. So you're kind of 
pushing up to that two years before the the calf is weaned and leaves the mum. Females won't breed for about two to three years after giving birth, but this can actually be up to six years in in some cases. So there can be quite long periods between having a calf, that calf being weaned and then breeding again. Sexual maturity is reached between about 18 to 15 years for males and about five to 13 years for females. And these are a very social mammal. They live in small groups and they do occasionally form larger pods if the food is available. I reckon they are our most studied cetacean around the UK. There's been a lot of projects working on this. I've actually been lucky enough to work on one of these projects to do with recognising individuals. The individual dolphins can be identified by notches and marks on their dorsal fins. And these are unique to that dolphin, just like our fingerprints are to us. And yeah, I actually spent, I think, about five or six months working at the Cardigan Bay Marine Wildlife Centre, where we were doing photo identification and regular boat trips to actually work on that dolphin population um, off the west coast of Wales. And it's really interesting, actually, when you see them. Interestingly, dolphins have their own names, as it were. And they're not names like, you know, we have, like Vic and Neil. They're a series of unique clicks and whistles that are used by other dolphins to communicate. And, And they do this frequently. They're very vocal and they do communicate a lot with each other. The diet consists mainly of fish such as herring, mackerel, cod, bass, salmon and sea trout. They will actively approach and bow ride with some boats. There are preferences to the type of boat they'll actually bow ride with and I've actually been lucky enough I think you know I posted a video the other day that was shot up in Scotland a few years ago where I was lucky enough to be out filming but dolphins that were leaping and jumping you know right in front of the boat and I've got another one to share where I'm actually hanging over the front of the boat filming dolphins bow riding so we'll pop that up there as well you know often we most often see them probably when they're slow swimming when they're traveling but when they start kind of like when they're being really active and they're swimming fast, they can leap clear of the water. You know, they're like, they are very, very active. There is a dark side to dolphins as well, to bottlenose dolphins. And we do know that they do commit infanticide. They will kill off calves to bring the female into season more quickly. And there has been a lot of research out there to show that they do actually kind of beat up and they will kill harbour porpoise as well. You know, there have been a few cases and when they do the autopsies on these, they know because almost every bone in the body is broken in the harbour porpoise so you know that they're a big tough strong animal and but you know they do have their dark side to them as well bullies of the sea (laughs) they are they are but you know we still love them and there there is there is even cases of them attacking people who which Mm. therefore getting too close they're portrayed as this you know lovely flipper like character and sharks are the bad boys (laughs) there's a case we made a dolphin's more dangerous than a shark in many cases certainly in british waters there there is not that dolphins are dangerous per se it just shows how undangerous Undangerous? How not dangerous? <laughs> Undangerous. New word. Sharks are. So, should we move on to something a little bit bigger, Neil? Yeah. Um, uh, we're going to move on to the killer whale, or as I would prefer to call them, the orca. It's actually not a whale. The orca is a member of the dolphin family, and it is the largest member of the family. And you know, it's unmistakable. You're not mistaking an orca for anything else. Not really. Not free willy. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're talking about a large, robust dolphin of four metres and 650 kilos. You know, we're now talking about an orca, which is up to about six and a half metres for females, seven and a half metres for males, obviously a lot, lot heavier. And the males are actually quite a bit larger um, than the females. But, you know, both are, are solid, robust creatures. And they have very distinctive tall dorsal fin. And this is much, much larger in the male. And it's quite often curved over, you know, which you can see. And, and when you see them... As I said, there is no mistaking them because when you see that massive dorsal fin coming out, it really can't be anything else. When you actually do see them, they are being black and white, but they have a grey saddle path kind of between the dorsal fin. And they also have a white eye patch, which is very, very distinctive diagnostic features. And they're long lived. Males can live up to about 60 years. Females can live up to about 90 years. So, you know, they're, they're very long lived animals. The females become sexually active at around seven years. Males at between about 10 to 12 years. And gestation form is between about 13 to 16 months. And calves are actually thought to be born between about October and December time in the Northern Hemisphere. And this varies. They are, you know, we do find orcas across the globe. And some areas we find that they feed. They have very, very specialist diets in some areas. We're not going to go too much into that, but just have a look up at the comparisons between it's South America, it's seals and, you know, the ones in New Zealand have a very different specialist diet as well. So the calves will suckle for normally about 12 months, but they'll remain with their mothers for many years. And family pods often do actually stay together. And females will breed about every three years or so. Now, we do have a resident population of orcas here in the UK, and this is off the west coast of Scotland. 
but unfortunately it's believed to be a post-reproductive population of around about 10 individuals and they have been known to hunt other cetaceans so other whales and dolphins and they're not the only ones you know there is some footage out there where you, you see them hunting the calves of bigger whales so you know they are known to hunt cetaceans and they hunt collectively quite often as well we do also get other orcas coming down and these they've, they've been termed cetacean killers but I, I don't think that's really fair they they do hunt cetaceans but they will eat other things as well and this is our, our resident population they don't mix with the the fish and the seal eaters that we see further north particularly up in in kind of orkney and shetland area now, the best time to see them is actually between around may and july around Orkney and Shetland and this actually coincides with the seal pupping season so it, it's not a coincidence and the orcas that they get there are actually from the Icelandic population they follow the herring shoals down and they stay for the seal pupping season and photo identification studies that have been carried out have shown that there are potentially up to around 200 individuals that visit our waters in this area during the summer and that's a huge number and I have actually seen from Twitter because a few of the people that I follow on Twitter do live up in Orkney and Shetland and you know there's been some really amazing sightings already of them this year which I think is, is great you know one year I'm going to make it up there and see them. Now within orca, orca populations knowledge of what to eat and where to find it what to avoid is actually passed down to the younger individuals from the elders so there is a really important kind of family community bond within them and again they are vocal there are vocalizations and calls that are unique to the pods and family groups which allows these to communicate amongst themselves and also between the groups as well generally family pods contain between about five to twenty individuals but occasionally two or more pods may come together forming a super pod of around about 150 individuals or more and they're actually really quite inquisitive and they can be seen spy hopping and flipper slapping and even breaching. And I mean, you know, to see a killer whale breach in the wild must be absolutely phenomenal given its size. So that kind of brings to the end our kind of porpoise and, and dolphins. And, you know, I thought I'd touch on one whale species that is I mean, I don't think any of them, are, are, are they're never guaranteed as wildlife. You can't guarantee to see them. But I think, you know, we have one whale that you, it's probably the best chance of seeing a whale around the UK and it's this one and it's the minke whale and it's the smallest and most abundant of the baleen whales and it is the whale most commonly seen in UK waters. They're around seven to just under 10 metres for the males and females will grow up to between about seven and a half to 11 metres in length. They have a slender triangular head and the dorsal fin is actually situated quite far back. It's about two thirds of the way along the back. Adults will live for around 40 to 50 years. Males reach sexual maturity between about five and eight years. Females between about six and eight years. Mating for the minke whale takes place between October and March in the northern hemisphere. And I will say like with the orca and the minke whale, where they occur in the southern hemisphere, the mating seasons are, and breeding seasons are obviously different. So in the northern hemisphere, a single calf is born around about December to January after a 10 month gestation period. But it's actually not unusual for twins to be born and very occasionally it has been recorded that triplets have been born which is easier yeah, it's very unique among cetaceans it's normally just a single calf and calves will actually be weaned around about four to six months so it's quite a short period really they have a varied diet yeah this can consist of plankton heron cod whiting and sand eels and most often we encounter them as a solitary individual or maybe a group of one you know of two to three although there are records of some groups of up to about 15 when they've come together to feed in, in big feeding aggregations. They will sometimes spy hop and breach, although most often the way that we see them is just the back and the dorsal fin breaking the surface. So, you know, they're not a massively acrobatic species, but it's probably the whale that we will most commonly see in the waters. So there's just like a little insight into our five probably most commonly seen or most easily seen cetaceans that we have here in the UK. Well, we're just going to sort of finish up by mentioning some of the places you can see them i've been fairly lucky with cetaceans i've mentioned already marine penzance i've been out with them twice and both times i saw common dolphins i think they saw was it a right whale or something once and they get the old hump back and stuff and minky down there they get risso's dolphins recent years i seem to have got a, a few sightings of those and obviously harbour porpoises i've seen harbour porpoises off dungeness so harbour porpoises are one you can see off shorelines in various places really uh, going a bit further north on the west coast so the west coast seems to be you know best for mainland britain generally i'll sh mention the exceptions whales uh, off pembrokeshire I've, on the boat trip to scoma i've had porpoises and my first ever 
common dolphins, I believe, are there as well. And there's Cardigan Bay, which I think you're going to talk about, Vic, isn't there? Yeah, Cardigan Bay is actually a really good place to see them. You can actually just sit on the harbour wall and they, they come in into the bay and they will feed in the bay. So you can actually, when I, I worked there, I volunteered there for, I think it's about five months, and we would actually do land-based sightings and boat-based sightings. They come in that close sometimes. And you can just sit on the harbour wall and you know have an ice cream and watch the dolphins playing right in front of you. And it is a resident population. We did... Yeah, we were working on a long term photo identification study of these dolphins. And, you know, each year we would produce a book with the dolphins that have been seen. And this knowledge is actually shared between all the different groups that are monitoring them, because then we can see if any individuals are actually moving between groups. But yeah, I'd say Cardigan Bay is a really good place to see them. You know, you can just sit on the harbour wall and see, you know, just do some land based surveying and see if you can see them or you know jump on one of the boat trips and go out with the guys there and they'll take you out and hopefully you'll you'll get a, a closer look of them but that's a really good place to see them west coast of ireland's fantastic for them and basking sharks and various other things i've seen not done it myself but it's on my list to do at some point <laughs> one i think you're going to talk about scotland aren't you but i'll very quickly yeah. mention yorkshire if you go to Scarborough, that's it. I think Scarborough, there's a, a road there that's meant to be quite good for seeing them. I've been out with Yorkshire Coast Nature, which is Steve Race and his colleagues. And I've been out twice on their sort of pelagic bird one. And we've, I've seen minkies both times. We saw quite a lot last year. And that, because of the weather, that's put off loads and loads. And I think we got the first boat trip out that year, which was in July. So probably about a year ago today. Was it August? Might have been August. And uh, there was lots of minkies about and it was fantastic to see. Really, really good. And a few harbour porpoises there as well. But they, they've had the odd humpback and uh, Finwell and stuff around there. But you go six miles out off Yorkshire coast and you can never guarantee it. But you've got a pretty good chance of seeing them there. The weather's good. Yeah. And the, and the other the other places is, is Scotland. Scotland's actually a really good place to see stations. So, yeah, Orkney and Shetland is really the place to go if you want to see the orcas. I've not been up there yet, but you know hopefully i can get up there at some point i have another reason i really want to go to the orkneys there's a jewelry shop up there that i really want to go to that i love um, <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you know why not tie it in with going to see some some orcas as well but the other place that's really good is i i actually worked up in up on the west coast of scotland in the inner hebrides for about 10 months or probably slightly less than that working as a wildlife guide doing boat trips up there and it's not guaranteed, I think, with anything, but, you know, there, there are times that we've had some really amazing sightings of bottlenose dolphins up there and the minke whale as well and the harbour porpoise. So we've not seen common dolphins up there personally, but I actually lived on one of the little islands. And if you got lucky, you could actually sit at the back of the island and see them passing between the islands. And one of the reasons like, they like that area is where you have the tidal rushes you do get congregations of food. So they will come in there to feed. And the video that I shared the other day, that is actually shot in the in the Hebrides in that area, just basically between the islands. So it's that's a really an, another really good place. So if you if you're up in Scotland or you're visiting Scotland, you know, definitely kind of pay the, the inner Hebrides a trip and you know, jump on one of the trips up there and see if you can see them. You know, I had a great time working up there. We we got to see so much wildlife. It's amazing. And I mean the thing is it's not just the cetaceans up there if you go on one of the boat trips you know normally without fail we'd see the white-tailed sea eagles the seabirds a whole bunch of stuff so it is amazing yeah and you've got a chanry point on the east side of scotland on the moray firth isn't it and there's a spot yeah. where the dolphins feed when the tide's right on the salmon and they can come in very close to shore i've, I've been there but word of warning it can get very very busy there mm. uh, yeah i've heard you know fights breaking out stuff because people want the best spot but yeah yes um and one last one which technically isn't uk waters but you set off in the uk you can get cruise ships that go through the bay of biscay and some friends of mine and you get all sorts of sperm whales and beaked whales and all sorts on those because it's and actually a deep oceanic well not maybe not oceanic but it's certainly a deep water area where you get lots of species that you wouldn't get on the near shore in the uk and some friends did that i was meant to go on it but i couldn't do it in the end it was really annoying and we were meant to go this year, but for obvious reasons, we haven't done it. <laughs> Cruise yeah. ships. There was a, yeah. Yes. They're all moored off Tilbury down the road from me. You can see them all sitting on the edge mm. of the Thames. I think we'll probably wrap up the dolphins and whales there. I so hope you liked our little kind of delve into some marine life for a change, actually. You know, we said we, we do want to cover a wide variety of subjects on the podcast and we are kind of making our way through them. And you can't so, get much more opposite to the bugs with <laughs> the no, biggest yeah. creatures on the planet. Yeah, stag beetles to cetaceans. That's, yeah. It's a big jump. 
Stag Bit were pretty big, but they ain't a well. No, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Right, I guess we'll we'll wrap it up there. Just wanted to thank everyone that's been reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you feel the urge to do so, please do. Just help with our uh, getting the word out there a bit more. We're on Spotify as well and various other platforms, one of which we get one listen you know, a week or something on that I'm told. But yeah, we're getting lots of lovely listens. So thanks again to everybody. Uh, look after us on social media, Instagram, UK Wildlife Podcast, and all one word, and UK Wildlife Podcast, three separate words on Facebook. And yeah, big thank you to everyone that's been kind of interacting. And we will get round to replying to your posts. You know, things have been a bit, bit kind of crazy busy for us, you know, with, with work and some other, other bits and pieces. But, you know, please do keep interacting with us. We do really appreciate it. And we do read them even if we don't always reply. But we will get kind of round to, to kind of replying and getting back to you. And thank you to everyone that's actually kind of given us a like or a follow on them as well. Because, you know, it's great to see so many people starting to kind of interact with us and sharing with us what you're seeing which is fantastic so again yeah just another really really massive thank you from us both to everyone out there and i think should we leave on a bit of a teaser about that some people have been suggesting that we team up and start doing some how can i put it non-podcast activities that people can join in with yes tours maybe but I'm just gonna, we're, we're very much at the planning stage, so I won't say any more. We um, are, and it, and it won't be this year. No, it won't we be will this say year. that now. It won't be this year, but you know we have been discussing some options. Mm, planning is taking place. Planning is taking place, and we're looking at some ideas and stuff for next year. One and of maybe, which might not just be us. No, it might not just be us. And you know, looking at maybe taking the podcast on the road a little bit as well, yeah. and doing some live live broadcast which was the plan for this year but the coronavirus kind of mm. put pay to that unfortunately oh i've got a youtube channel go check it out it's youtube forward slash uk wildlife i'm putting the odd thing on there hopefully i have something really nice to put on there soon as well i'm working on but yeah i'm starting to do a few more videos and stuff and look out for some possible guest presenters oh yes in some of the coming episodes yeah we'll talk more about that next one i think yes just going to leave that teaser there for you yeah that's a good one right okay then well that's it from us see you next time everybody stay safe take care Bye. bye